Hey, Pastor, um, let me go ahead and do the recording because I think my, my internet is going to be a little more uh, stable because I, that's what happens sometimes is it ends up cutting out. Are you okay with that? I'm muted, yeah. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church for Sunday service today. Just a reminder to those who are on Skype that we are recording this message, so we'd ask you to please mute your microphone at this time. And we will begin right now with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you, in your infinite mercy and love and in your justice, knew that there would be no way to save the human race apart from your son becoming man and dying as the perfect sacrifice in our place. And so you sent him for that purpose. He came for that purpose. He died. You raised him from the dead on the third day. That whoever believes in your son never perish, but has eternal life. And Father, today we, we gather together in honor and celebration of you and your son. We ask that this service today be glorifying to you through the word of God and through our fellowship with one another. We also pray, Father, for the saints in general here and around the world and the different protections and the different comfort and challenges that we all need from time to time from your word. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Just a reminder that uh, we are not going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today because it will be next week. Just so everyone has a week to prepare. I wasn't here last week, so I wasn't able to let everybody know. So next Sunday, the 10th, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Next Sunday, the 10th. Okay, let's begin. If you would at this time, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, verse 10. John chapter 7, verse 10. Title of today's message comes from this passage. Jesus went up to the temple to teach. Jesus went up to the temple to teach. Let's read the passage. John chapter 7, starting in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, that he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and he said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Well, as you can see now from, from the first section of our reading this morning, Jesus' brothers went ahead of him to the feast. Their intention was to celebrate the feast. They wanted him to come with them as part of the pilgrimage in the hope that he would be welcomed as the, as the king and then um, there would be a great procession. That was their vision of things. So that wasn't what the father wanted at this time. And so Jesus didn't go with them. And even when he went, notice in verse 10, 
It wasn't publicly. He didn't make a big display of himself. It was in secret. In other words, he kind of went by himself, didn't, you know, didn't make a big uh, splash, went in. And then and notice even then when he went in, he uh, he in verse 14. And I'll get to this in a minute. He went into the temple and began to teach. And so his his mindset was, I'm going to go teach there. All right. So not only that, but notice verse 11. I want to point this out because uh, we see this so, so often in the Gospel of John, where it says, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast. Remember, most of the time when John uses that, that expression, the Jews, he's not talking about every Jewish person. He is talking about the leadership, the, hier- the hierarchy, the, the, the priests and the, and the uh, Sanhedrin and so forth. OK, so that's what he's talking about. They were the ones who were seeking him and not for any good intent either. He had already had conflict with them, major conflict. Remember back in chapter five when he healed the paralytic and and it was on a Sabbath and then uh, the paralytic was questioned. He told him it was Jesus and they confronted Jesus saying, how could you do this on the Sabbath? You're breaking the Sabbath. And then he took it. He took it a step further, basically claiming that he, he was God in the flesh, God's son. They were ready to kill him then. Back in chapter five, as a matter of fact, that's why he got out of there. And even at the beginning of chapter seven, when his brothers were saying, let's go, he was still saying, it's not my time. If I if I go with you and make a big splash, they're going to take me now and I'll be dying six months before I'm supposed to, basically. So um, and notice um, in verse 12, there's much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. By the way, this was uh, whispering. All right. Sort of a not not a, a, a dialogue that they wanted everybody to hear. Because they were in fear of the Jews. Notice in verse 13, no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. In other words, they already knew Now, this crowd had come from from Jerusalem and Judea, but also from Galilee, as we know, and also from other countries, what they call the, the diaspora. It's a fancy word for saying that the Jews had been dispersed throughout the world, the known world. And, and they, too, came for those feasts, including we saw this one. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the best, most heavily attended of the three feasts where the Jewish men had to come to Jerusalem. And so there were all kinds of people. And the, the animosity of the leaders towards Jesus was so acute, so strong, that all the people knew about it. And because of that, they knew that they didn't even want to speak openly of him. In other words, they didn't want to take sides. They didn't want to bring up his name. That's how much hatred there was for him among the leadership and the powerful people. And in verse 12, notice there are two minds here, right? On the one hand, there are some that were saying he's a good man. And that's about the best they could say about him. And we have millions of people that the best today they can say about Jesus is he's a good man, right? They don't recognize that he is the savior, that he is the Jewish Messiah, that he's God in the flesh. And neither did these people. They said he's a good man. Some of them. And others were saying much worse. They were were here charging him with leading the people astray, which, by the way, was a very serious charge. Very serious charge. It was saying that basically that he's a false prophet. Okay. So the notes now, there's a lot of noise and hubbub and so forth. Jesus knew that that would happen. That's why he waited. Uh, but you can see that the whole city is buzzing with the possibility that he might appear with the pilgrims to the feast. And again, I mentioned this already, but there were crowds, big crowds. They were Jews from Judea, from Galilee and other places as well, from other lands. And as we just saw, there are two minds about him. Some thought one thing, some thought another. 
Jesus divides. We've seen this already, where where at some point in time he's they're divided into like in chapter six. We saw where at, at one, after a while, when he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that caused a huge division. As a matter of fact, most of his disciples didn't walk with him anymore, and just a few stayed with him. So Jesus has this effect. He has this effect on the one hand of those who believe in him, being strengthened in that belief and, and more committed. On the other hand, those who reject him also become more committed in their hatred and opposition. And we're going to see this as we go through the Gospel of John. This is going to build. This is going to be more and more evident and more and more um, uh, ferocious, as it were, as we go forward. And we're seeing it already here in chapter chapter 7. Some thought he was a good man, but others thought just like the Jewish authorities thought. They also thought that he was leading the people astray. They thought he was a danger to the people. And a lot of the people in the crowd thought the same thing. Very often that's what happens, right? Most people go along with the popular people, right? Today we would say the media or Hollywood or whatever you want to say, or the all the religious hierarchies, even in this country. Most people don't want to stray too far from that. And it was the same back then. Most of the crowd were siding with the leadership, with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. They say he was leading the people astray. And what they meant by that was that he was leading them astray from their religion from their religion, from the establishment and the politics, as it were. And again, it's no different today. It's no different today. We have people We have uh, people today right now in the United States who consider that if you teach from the Bible, that you're actually um, a part of one political party. If you teach from the Bible, in other words, the, the powers that be are saying, you can't, we're not going to consider you a nonprofit if you teach from the Bible, because we've decided that that is actually political. Now, that's where we've come. So we're not that different from the way things were when Jesus was walking the land. Well, there's all this going on. Jesus knew that was going to happen. And yet he, he's coming to Jerusalem now, and he's not paying any attention. He's cutting through all the noise, not paying any attention to the controversy. He is going to Jerusalem, but it, he is not there to win over the crowds. He is there, not even, by the way, to celebrate the feast. I want you to notice in verse 14, it's very interesting how that's worded. But when it was now the midst of the feast, okay, that's, a, that's, that's telling what day it was. It was in the middle of that eight-day feast. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to celebrate the feast, does it? That's not why he went up. He had another purpose that the father had given him. He went up into the temple and what? Began to teach. So he wasn't there to win over crowds. He wasn't there to celebrate the feast. He was there for one reason. It was the reason his father gave him. And that was to teach. It was still time for him to teach the people. And, and today, in this portion of scripture from verse 10 to verse 18, it's his teaching that takes center stage. Now, it's interesting I say that because we don't really know exactly what he taught. Nevertheless, it becomes the focal point for this, for this um, interaction, this conflict, really, between Jesus and the, and the leadership of the Jewish establishment. It brought up questions. The first big one was, what gives you the authority to teach, right? <laughs> I've had that question, by the way, from time to time. Certain people that say, well, one of the first questions when I tell people I'm a pastor 
within Christian circles, not outside, is, oh, what seminary did you graduate from? Right? No, seriously. And when I tell them I didn't graduate from a seminary, they're like, you know, I just went down about 10 pegs in their mind. Well, then what gives you the authority to teach? No, it's the same question they were asking Jesus. Well, you know what? They can ask me all day and I don't take offense. Well, maybe sometimes I do. But when they asked Jesus that, that was a whole other situation. But they were asking, what gives you the authority to teach? And then another step further was, where does your teaching come from? Where does your teaching come from? In other words, if it doesn't come from the rabbis, if it's not coming from the, the scholars, well, where could it be coming from? Are you making this up? Is this all you? Are you promoting yourself here? And then the third thing was, okay, so let's just say, we'll get. how do we know that he is teaching the truth? That was the third question they asked. Okay, what gives you the authority? Where did your teaching come from? How do we know whether it's the truth? By the way, those are fairly reasonable questions. I don't want to put the people down for that because you want to know something even today. Those are really legitimate questions for people to ask about a pastor who's teaching. You know, what gives him the authority? What, where does it come from? You know, if it's not from the Bible, right? And then is it the truth? Okay. And above all, though, is the question, what does this teaching really mean? What is he really saying as he's teaching? So let's continue now in John chapter 7. Let's look at verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, now remember, that's the Jewish authorities. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? How does he know so much about God and the scriptures if he hasn't been taught? In one of our schools or one of our leading rabbis. How can this, how, how, we, they didn't understand. Now, their astonishment was actually as much hostility as it was, you know, being surprised. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and he said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What he's saying is, he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if I, if I haven't been educated by your people, then I must be, this must be my own special teaching that isn't really from this Bible, isn't about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know that's what you're thinking, but he's saying it's not mine. I didn't make this up, right? It's him who sent me. And again and again and again, we see Jesus always going that way, always pointing to his father. And so, and he, and, and so that's always the big issue. Did the father send Jesus? Did God send Jesus as his son to teach, to die, to be raised from the dead, to be the Jewish Messiah? Did, is that true or not? And that's something that everybody has to come to terms with. Is Jesus from God? Did God send Jesus? And is he, there, is he really God's son? That's where it all starts. No, if you, if, if you, if you just reject that, once you reject that Jesus is from God, that really ends it all. It's, you, know, you can't go from Jesus um, being, you know, to be a savior if you don't even think he's from God. And so that was, the, that, was the, that was the turning point for anybody in the crowd. My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me, his who sent me. And notice verse 17. We're going to spend some time on this. This is a very probing statement. Verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. There's a way to test whether this teaching is from God or not. 
And it's a, it'd be surprising to a lot of people in the United States today who are Christians. You know, it isn't. It, 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 ultimately, it's what? If anyone is willing to do his will, that's the ultimate way we can recognize God's word. I'll get into that a little bit more. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him, the Father. He is true. He is pure. He's 100% authentic. And there's no unrighteousness in him. How could there be? How could there be anything unrighteous in what he's teaching when it all came from God the Father? When his motives were pure, they weren't mixed. He wasn't there saying, on the one hand, I'm here to represent the Father. On the other hand, I'm trying to further my own interests here. I really you know, want to be accepted as the Messiah. There was none of that. He's very selfless. And, and, of course, he's the model for us. He's the model for every pastor. You know, what, when we start to put too much or any of ourselves in the message, that's when things go astray. It's only when we stick to the pure word of God that we're doing our job. And it's a great reminder. It's a reminder for all of us. You should once in a while step back. And say, all right, I, 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 I'm, sure, I'm thinking that this is, I'm, I'm doing God's will, but is there any glory for me in it? Have I turned the corner and said, you know what, now it's my turn. You know, now I want people to be impressed with me, or I want them to say how much I've done for the Lord. As soon as it starts to get there, then you've gone off track. It's no longer about the glory of the one who sent me. It's about my glory. Or, or the glory that I want to receive from other people. That's a key, key challenge, to, especially for communicators of the word of God, but really for all Christians. It's a temptation as we go forward in, in, in God's plan for our lives. Try and make it about us again, because we think it's a good way. You know, now we're saying, well, before, oh, you know, I was a wretched sinner. But now, man, I'm a Christian. And I know the Bible. There's something about me now that I can, you know, project to other people. And you've always got to be reminded, you know, without Christ, you're nothing. And that's a, we all have to come there from time to time. Certain, certain events in our lives, certain scriptures that hit us and we realize, you know, I know who I really am without God. Now, we are in Christ. I'm not talking about that. But in terms of our own nature, it never changes. In fact, it gets worse. And so every day of our lives, we need to be reminded of who it is that has saved us. Who, why it is that we have this relationship with the Father. Okay, so and that never changes. All right, so I want you to just notice that in verse 15, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, Jewish authorities, were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished because they said, How did he how does he know this? Where does this come from? He hasn't he hasn't come the way that all the other rabbis have come. He doesn't have the authority that all our other rabbis have. But when it says they were astonished, you know, in our in our use of that word today, that's like a positive. You know, I'm astonished. Wow, how great that is. That wasn't at all what was what was happening. Shocked would be a better word, actually. They were shocked because they were not rejoicing over the fact that here is this man who has this command of the scriptures. They were very hostile. Now, who does he think he is? He hasn't come up the way that we think you're supposed to come up. But one thing's for sure, they could not dispute his command of the scriptures. And that's the thing that will, um, that's, the, that's the thing that you can test a preacher by as well. 
It's the command of the scriptures. It's, it, and that's indisputable. You can debate about a person's style. You can debate about whether he went to a seminary or not. But as soon as you're faced with the, 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 the authority of the scriptures, all of that goes away. And they could, they could not dispute that he had commanded the scriptures, that, and they knew that he hadn't studied under any of their prominent rabbis. One of the ways that that became clear, by the way, for the people was that he didn't act the way the rabbis acted when they taught. They were always fond of citing their education. I studied under this rabbi, right, to give them the credibility to establish their authority to teach. Not only that, but their manner of teaching was to cite different authorities. You know, I'm teaching you this now. Well, this rabbi here said that that's true or this scholar over there. And, and, and that's the way they taught. They didn't. Jesus taught with direct authority. You know, even even the prophets would say, thus says the Lord. But Jesus would say, I say to you, which is a which is a, at a totally other level. He's saying my teaching came from God and God's my father. And I have this intimate relationship. Everything I, I have, he has given me to say and to do. And I and he has given me all things. I share all things with the father. That was his authority. It's, it's a remarkable authority. There's no, again, once you combine that with his command of the scriptures, and as we'll see uh, who he is and how his words rang true, then there's really no argument. And so, you, you know, the people who were, who were observing this um, could see, could start to see that maybe there's a little hypocrisy among these leaders. Maybe they're the ones that have their own self-interest here in their interaction with the Lord. The manner of teaching is so important. You know, and it's still true today. You want to be careful when people who are preaching, all they're doing is citing other authorities. You know, so-and-so taught this, right? Uh, this must be true because, you know, John MacArthur taught it. Or, or even Pastor Thien taught it, right? It's not true because they taught it. Right. There's only one reason it's true. And it's from the scriptures. And so there's really no need to, as it were, drag in your authorities when you're teaching because you have the ultimate authority, which is God's word. And so, so be careful when, when people are always, you know, documenting and citing and, and, and they're not just forward proclaiming the word of God. And it's uh, and that's what Jesus did. And that's what they were asking him here. They were saying, listen, you know, you have never been educated how you become so learned. And Jesus gave him a straight answer. Notice in verse 16, Jesus answered them and he said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My teaching is not mine. See, they were, they were used to people coming in and saying, you know what? I have a new message from God. I am here. I am your Messiah. I am the one who's going to rescue you from the Roman people. I have an insight into, into what God's doings and so forth and and so they were used to it now they ultimately were those people were ultimately found out to be charlatans but they were used to the men coming in who hadn't been trained by their rabbis coming in with that approach you could argue that john the baptist you know they had the same skepticism about him because he too was not trained by the rabbis he wasn't in the learned centers he didn't grow up around the temple in jerusalem and so forth and the same thing with Jesus. And so he, Jesus understood that he had to tell them straight out where his authority came from, where his teaching came from. He said, it's not mine, 
It's not mine. What's he saying? He says, this isn't my own teaching. I didn't invent this. I didn't invent this teaching. As a matter of fact, he says, this is all coming from my father. He had said this earlier. Look at John chapter 3, verse 31. John chapter 3, verse 31. Here again, John chapter 3 is also takes place in, in Jerusalem. And Judea. Look at John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. And that's that's also who Jesus was claiming to be. From the very beginning, he's saying, listen, I'm from above. I've come from above. I've come down to earth from, from above. I am, I am from the Father. I've come here with a mission. And then when I'm done, I'm going back to the Father. I am from above is above all. He was of the earth is from the earth. It speaks of the earth. There were plenty of people who had an earthly perspective who still became very learned in the scriptures. You didn't have to be a believer to be taught by a rabbi things about the scriptures. But you, but you do have to be a believer in order for, the, for you to understand the power and the meaning behind those words. And that's an important distinction. He was of the earth. It's from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, is above all. Notice verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies. Well, he what, where he, what he has seen in heaven and heard in heaven of that he testified. That was always his claim of authority was the fact that I come from heaven. My father is in heaven. All my authority comes from my father. Right. None of it comes from earth. Don't think that you can go back in my human history and understand how I develop to become who I am, where I learn these things on earth. He's saying, listen, I'm not like any other man. I've come from above. And again, there's that challenge. You can't just say Jesus is a good man. You have to either accept who he says about himself or, or come to the conclusion that he's not a good man. Because if he says he's from God in heaven and God is his father and he's not, why would you listen to him at all? And this is the same challenge that people have today. They, they want to say, well, you know, I like some of his teaching. And I don't like other parts, you know, but I don't accept who he is. And uh, it's like you might as well. But those, those teachings might as well just be, you know, in a book that anybody can read and nothing to do with God at all. OK, so his teaching comes from above. Again, look at verse 33 now. I'm sorry, verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Can you imagine how frustrating it must have been to the Lord? You know, sometimes I think we can't help when we're reading these things in the Gospels to sort of try to take a middle ground between Jesus and the people. Try, well, I kind of see where they're coming from, you know? But imagine being him and knowing who you are and being clear about, I am God's son, I am the Messiah. And um, I'm going to be really straightforward about speaking about that. And he knew that people, most of the people wouldn't be able to accept that. And so and so um, this was the this was the comfort. But he never seen this already. He's never deviated from that truth. He knew who he was never deviated from that. He didn't try to spin it a certain way to please the crowds or to help them come to terms in their own way of thinking. Like, you know, so much of what happens today in the church is that way, unfortunately. Um, it's called seeker sensitive is one of the words, but it's the idea is, you know, so adopt 
the thinking of the unbeliever and, and then you'll win him over to Christ. You know, that's not going to work. Right? Jesus, Jesus never did that. He always presented it straight up. Here's who I am. You can believe it or not. No one receives his testimony in verse 32. Verse 33. He who has received his testimony, notice this, has set his seal to this, that God is true. What a, what a remarkable statement. He's saying, whoever has received my teaching, my testimony, my word, you too have understood that God is true. God's word is true. It rings true in you too. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. That's clear. It's simple. There again, where is Jesus' authority to speak the word of God? He's saying, these, I, I am speaking as the one that God sent to say these things. Ask for his authority, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So what was his authority to teach? Quite simply, it's God himself. God is his father. God sent him to speak all the words that he spoke. By the way, God sent him to do all the things that he would do. But you have to admit that that is quite a claim. Again, again, from the point of view of people who are expecting credentials, expecting training, learning, for him to say, listen, my authority is God himself. You know, that, that, again, same thing. You can't say, oh, he's a good man. And, okay, if, he, if someone says my authority comes from God, and, it, and what he's saying, he's invented, and that is not a good man. That is a false teacher. So he says God is the authority. And then, of course, the question is, what? How do we know? How can we know that what you're saying comes from God's authority? How can we know that you're telling the truth? And this is where it gets interesting in our passage today. Because Jesus is going to say there is only one way to know. There's only one way to know whether or not what I'm teaching is true. There's only one way to know whether or not what the word of God teaches is true. And it's not what so many think. I'm going to stop here because if you think about that, and again, I want you to think of it in the context of maybe your unbeliever friends or maybe even a scripture that has been really challenging that you don't want to accept, right? How do you know that it's the truth, right? So what do we do with unbelievers when they ask that question? How do, how do I know the Bible is the truth? Well, be honest. What do we do? We say, well, you know, it's 66 books and it's been here a long time. And don't you know there's miracles in the Bible? And, and we start to approach it that way of trying to win over their minds. Right. That that is not how people come to an understanding of the truth about God, about Jesus and about his word. Matter of fact. There's only one way, and it might be a very surprising way this morning, not only to unbelievers, but a lot of Christians too. Look at verse 17. How do you know that Jesus is telling the truth? Look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, God's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. What's the test? If anyone is willing to do his will, then he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. In other words, people have to come to the word of God and say, listen, uh, there's a God 
and I want to know who he is. And whoever he is, I understand that, you know, he's all powerful. And therefore, whoever he is, I'm, I'm committing to that. I am ready to do his will. It's that attitude. It's not doing his will. Notice it doesn't say if anyone is doing his will, because that's impossible for the unbeliever. As a matter of fact, that's not the test for us either. Right? The test is our heart. Are we willing to do his will? Are we willing to give the word of God a hearing? Are we willing to say, if this is what God's saying, then I'm going to accept it and I'm going to live a certain way. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. What do we want to do, though? What, what, What do we want to do when we hear the word of God? Well, first of all, what we want to do is is uh, analyze it often. We want to kind of put it in the category. We want to say, um, I, I, I hear this teaching, I understand it, I'm smart, or or, or so forth. He's, we, see, we don't we don't like to automatically be challenged. Okay, you're hearing it. Now do it. Now be willing to do what the Lord says. The Lord said it really clearly one time. He would say. How can you call me Lord, 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 and not do what I say? And it's really that simple. Christians don't want to think about that. Christians want to say, what a lovely message. They want to sing the hymns, but they, but they don't want to be challenged to actually do what it says. That's hard. You see what I'm saying? That's hard. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God, whether I speak for myself. And then verse 18, he who speaks from himself Seeks his own glory. There's that test of the glory. Am I seeking the glory of God or am I seeking the glory of John? Well, put your name in there. That's the, that's the key test, too. Because if, you're, if your heart is right, you're not going to be seeking your own glory in, in God's word and God's plan. Quite the opposite. You're going to understand that, you know, I come, I come with nothing of myself. And, I, and, my, and, and, and my object here is to glorify the one who has rescued me, who has saved me from from sin and so forth. That's my motivation. He is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He is true. He is pure. He is authentic. And there's no unrighteousness in him. So it boils down to this. Okay, you're you're, you're hearing the teaching. You want to know whether it's from God or whether Jesus is just speaking as a human being. And the question is, why? Why do you want to know that? Why do you want to know whether this teaching is from God or not? So you can debate some finer points of theology. Is that why you want to know this is from God? Do you want to know whether this teaching is from God so you can get a leg up on others with you having more knowledge than they do? Or maybe you're trying to catch Jesus in a trap, which is what they were always trying to do. Or, you know, some people want to catch the Bible in a trap. They want to say the Bible contradicts itself. Is that why you want to know about the teaching? There's only one sure way. And again, only one sure way. John 7, 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. How do you know whether his teaching is from God or of himself? There's only one way. There's only one sure way to know whether his teaching is from God. There's only one sure way to know when you hear something from God's word. How do you know ultimately it's from him? You have to be willing to do God's will. You have to be willing to do God's will. Now, it's an attitude. And it's not saying that that if if you're not doing works, then you're not understanding that it's the truth from God. It's an attitude. 
I'm willing. I'm I'm coming to this not not um, and in a subjective way. I'm not coming to this for anything I can get out of it. I'm coming to this because I want to hear from God and I want to do what He says. It's an it's an attitude. You have to be willing to do God's will, even if it goes against what you consider to be your own self interest or your own plan. You have to be single minded. And by the way, we're going to see. We're going to go to some of the the scriptures that. The Jews claimed that they believed and trusted in. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy, for example. And we're going to see what they were told at the very beginning about God. And that it was clear they had lost complete sight of because they weren't willing to do God's will. That was the big problem. Okay. By the way, that's why God teaches us stuff. You might wonder, you know, why does God have all this information in the Bible? Why does he have teachers to teach? Again, is it so that I can become real smart? You know, so as I can be, have a, a head full of doctrine? You know, is that why he teaches us? No, it is not to make us smart. It's one simple reason, to enable us. To enable us what? To do his will. He saved us. He's provided for us so that we can glorify him. It's so simple. And yet because of our human fleshliness, we don't want to take that next step. We always want to argue against it. Oh, you're putting me on a works program and so forth, right? No, actually, it's the whole point. You know, um, it, it, Paul in Romans chapter 8, it's great because if you want to talk about the struggle to do God's will, <laughs> it's what he talks about in the chapter before in Romans 7, where he says, you know, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. I've come to the realization that there is evil in me, the one who wants to do good. That's a real struggle, you see, and we all face that. But what's the answer to that? Thank God that Jesus Christ has been given to us. So then there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <coughs> for the power, the authority of the spirit of God, of life, has set us free from the governing power of sin and death. And we like that. But then we have to go on and say that God did this so that we could fulfill the righteousness of the law. And people don't want to think about that. Look, we're here. Let's take a look at it. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Why just hear it when you can read it? Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are fewer words more sweet than those, huh? There's no condemnation. We struggle. We, We all do. We all struggle with our sinfulness. We all see things about us that we don't like. We think about, we see our thoughts and we're like, where did those come from? We do things and we think, why did I do that? I don't, you know, that's totally opposed to what I claim to believe. And if we're not careful, we're going to start to condemn ourselves. We're going to start to say, I should be better than that. Okay. That's a, that is a real trap in the Christian way of life. When you look at something you did and you say, I can't believe I did that. You know, you better believe you can do it. You because because that's that's we, look if, if we don't, if we're not capable of doing those things then guess what we don't need Jesus 
right? If everything's fine inside, if we don't have any sinful part of us in the inside, then why do we need Jesus? Well, of course, we do. And whether or not we face it is a whole other issue. But again, the sweetest, some of the sweetest words, believe me, when, you're, when you've been in this struggle, and I know you all have. Maybe you want to forget it. Maybe you don't want anybody to know about it. But we've all been in this struggle in understanding that there's things about me that they were there 30 years ago. They were there 10 years ago. And I just discovered again that 10 minutes ago, they're still there. What do I do about that? And the answer is nothing. There's not a thing you can do about it. And thank God that Jesus did all about it, right? That, that, that hymn that talks about his blood and his water coming out of his side, you know, freed from sin, right? Freed from the wrath of God. And then what? And then make me pure. You see, thank God that, that that's what Christ has done for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already set us free from the law of sin and undeath. That's some other sweet words, isn't it? We were, we were under the bondage of sin. He has set us free. We were under the bondage of death and the fear of death. He has set us free. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, the law is holy, by the way. The law is holy. It expresses the holiness of God. It expresses how it is that we can live according to God's holiness. The law is good and holy and just, but there's something it could not do. Why? Weak as it was through our flesh. That's why the law couldn't achieve what it wanted to. We're not capable in our flesh of of keeping it, of obeying it. But that wasn't a problem because God took care of it. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God took care of. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin. Why? So he could condemn sin in the flesh. And then verse 4. Notice. He, he did these things. He, he sent his son. He came, the son came as a human person. And, and he went to the cross. He was the sin offering. And God through him condemned sin itself in his flesh. How, thank God. That very thing that we all look at. It's saying, I'm not talking about sins only. I'm talking about. The sin in us, the, the, the sinfulness that we were born with, the flesh that we were born with, we can we can atone if we, we can quote atone for every sin. We can confess every sin. We can try to make make amends with everybody we ever sinned against, but we'll never get rid of inside us that sinfulness, right? Well, thank God that He got rid of that. What did He do? He condemned sin in the flesh, and He started over. He's saying, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of all of that. I'm going to put it in one package, and I'm going to put it on Christ at the cross, and he's going to die not only to not only to for the forgiveness of your sins, but also he's dying to, to, to the sin itself. It's amazing that we don't think about that enough, but we should. All right? He condemns sin in the flesh. That means you don't have to. God's already condemned sin completely, entirely in the flesh. He's already dealt with it. He's already ruled it. He already knows and has ruled that it. it's totally evil. But Jesus took care of it. He doesn't need you or I continuing to rule against ourselves and our flesh and say, oh, that's evil. I can't believe it's there. He's saying, listen, it's totally there. That's why I sent Jesus. And he, But he's already dealt with it. Rest. Rest. That's the Christian way of life, so, you know, in, in terms of our relationship with sin, is to rest. You know, I no longer, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. 
that old me no longer lives. But the life of Christ lives in me. We, you know, it, it, it's a faith situation. We're not going to we're not going to necessarily experience, especially when we're in an area of sin and, and, and wondering, you know, am I ever going to get out of this? What did I do wrong? Um, we need to understand that you that's been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That life is over. Right. The life you live now in your body, you live by faith in the son of God. You live by faith that what he says is true. What he's done about your sin is true. And you believe in that way. and You live a, a new life, a life of victory through the spirit of God. But see, the, the, the way to live that life is not to go back and try to figure yourself out again. It, it's to go forward and rely on, on God's word and what God says about you and live that accordingly. But what is that life like? Again, look at verse four. So that, so that means this was the reason. This is what I was getting at, God is saying. When I did what I did with Christ on the cross, there is a so that. There's a purpose. There's a purpose in your life. What is it? So that you may go on on and live like heck and always say, you know what? All I got to do is confess it and I'm good with God again. Is that what that says? No. It says what? So that the requirement of the law. Let me stop for a second. That requirement of the law. Terrible, terrible translation. Doesn't that sound like we're right back under the law? Oh, no, I'm under the requirements again. It's not at all what it's saying. The, the word is really righteousness. The right, righteousness. Of, you know how we say that not the letter, but the spirit of the law, right? In other words, the righteousness of the law. It meant that God's holiness, which has never changed. That is why. So that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled by us. Somebody stop me if that's not what it says. So that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled by us. Hello? Is, the, <laughs> is that the preposition? Is it by? It's in. Another freeing thing. We don't have to perform the righteousness of the law. It's not fulfilled by us. It's fulfilled in us. What a freeing thing. You know why it's fulfilled in us? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. And it's the spirit who has victory over the flesh, not you, not I, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. But the thing you have to realize is that's the purpose. We forget this. That's the purpose of why we're here. That's the purpose of why the Lord died for us and he dealt with sin at the cross and God condemned sin at the cross. It's so that we might then live according to the righteousness, the holiness of what was behind the law all the time, being fulfilled in us. That's a great purpose. That's why, in large respect, why we're here. You know, it's funny because if you ask 95% of the Christians, right, and you say, okay, now that you're saved, now what? Why has God left you on earth? What will 95% of the Christians say? Not do, but say. What will they say? Why are you here? After you say, wow, you've been educated in the word of God. No, i got to be honest with you. Most people, if you go look at the churches and the conversation, it's going to be, well, now I have to go evangelize. Now, evangelizing is good and it is holy. But, but the purpose is much greater than even that. 
the purpose is that so that God would have his children now capable of having the righteousness of the law fulfilled in them. And that is that that part of that, yes, is evangelization. But part of it is an understanding and a realization of how great God is and how he's done this amazing work that he's already done it inside us. That life of faith, the life I live now, I live by faith in the son of God, loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that that, that, that your sin is in the past in terms of God now? That he's wiped it as far as the east is from the west. That is how far he has put our sins away from us. And do you, and he's done that so that now here we are and we have the spirit inside. And the spirit every day does war against that evil inside us so that we can be freed up to simply do God's will. Simply live. But it's a, but it is a life of obedience and adjustment. Look, it's like if you say to yourself, you know what, I used to be hateful towards this person. But now I understand where that hate comes, came from. I understand that God's power can overcome it. And oh, by the way, he's commanding me now. There's commands in the New Testament epistles, right? Forgive one another as God has also forgiven you. That's a way of life, you know? And, 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 and in some respects, we, we would much rather just think it's something I do now in the sense of saying, okay, I, I, I now please God by telling five people about Jesus every day. You should do that. Please don't misunderstand. But, but the purpose is to understand that he's, he has enabled you to live a whole life with all kinds of things, right? The fruit of the Spirit is also what's made possible by what Christ did on the cross. And, and there's a life where that is. There's a life of all the one another commands, you know, pray for one another, help one another, bear one another's burdens, you see, these are all the things that are enabled by what Christ did on the cross when he condemned sin. And the God, God the Father condemned sin in the flesh. Again, verse 4, so that the righteousness of the Lord might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the great purpose. God teaches us to enable us to do his will, to come to really know him. Right. He says, look, don't let a mighty man boast in his in his might or a rich man boast in his riches. But they should boast that they know and understand me. That is a great achievement, the destination that he's looking for us to come to know him, to love him from the heart, to really love him and be obedient to his teaching. All of those things are why he's teaching us. And we should never forget that. If you leave all that out. All you have left are lifeless letters on a lifeless page. If you don't think this is a life, if you think that the idea is just to learn things and not to obey and to understand that we got to come to know him better. And by the way, how do you come to know him better? To seek his will and his word. Exactly. Exactly. So we can't love him from the heart of our own. The Jews could never, you know, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your mind and heart and soul and strength. And nobody ever did it. No Jew in the Old Testament ever did. We can't do it of ourselves either. But because of the spirit, because he's condemned sin in the flesh and he's given us this life where we can now genuinely love him from the heart. He's freed us up to do. He's freed us up to do that. And it's all his enablement. But we can. We can. In fact, we, we do. 
You know, the Holy Spirit in Romans 5 pours the love of God into our hearts. That was the only way it would ever happen. When, when, when Jesus comes back and then the Jews go into the kingdom, the, the word of God says that I will write my laws on your heart. That's the only way you're going to be able to live the way I want you to live. I have to do it, the Lord says, for my sake. If you leave that out, this idea that we were created now and made anew to, to do his will, to honor him, obey him, and love him. Again, all you have are lifeless letters on a page. Look at Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. This is the attitude. Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. And I want you to take away something that simple. This is about attitude. This is about desire. We're weak, but we desire. You can have both of those, can't you? In fact, they work well together. Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. You can be weak and still desire. In fact, understanding your weakness drives you to desire him more. Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And if you approach that as a legal requirement, it'll never happen. I delight to do your will, oh my God. I delight. God has a way of turning our hearts so that being obedient is a delight. And it doesn't sound that way. You know why it doesn't sound like it when we say, I'm going to be obedient to God? Because of our flesh. <laughs> the flesh is, loves to be disobedient, loves to be in rebellion. But that part is already condemned. So you know, that's going to still be there, but it's been condemned. And now you're enabled through God's word and the spirit to actually delight, to enjoy doing his will, to love who God is. That's why it's so important. That's why, you know, it, it, we're looking at the, uh, the book of Isaiah and it's so important sometimes to just stop and take delight in who God is. The fact that he created all the stars and to delight and enjoy that, to, to, to realize that one day he's going to transform this whole universe. And to delight that he's going to, to delight that Jesus is going to come back. And now, and in the meantime, to be delighting to do his will. What, this is the attitude. What, is, what better can I do with my life than to glorify my creator, and my redeemer, the one when I was lost and dead, he came and made me alive. There's nothing, I, I just simply delight to do that. That's the, it's, it's a desire. And here's the thing. This is what what our passage in verse 17 is teaching. When all that is in your heart is the desire, the desire to do God's will. You're weak. You might not be able on your own to do it. You won't be able. You'll be in a. You can have this desire to do His will when you are in it. When you have been committing a sin. Sounds weird, isn't it? But it's true. As a matter of fact. The more you understand, more you get into areas of sin, you don't like what's inside you, but you understand that it's been condemned, the more you're going to fall in love with God, the more you're going to desire to do his will. We need him. We need him. And when we realize that, then it's like, 
<laughs> what I thought was the right way to go, what I thought I could accomplish on my own is nothing. It's not, I could be more graphic because the word of God is even more graphic than that, but it's nothing. What I really want to do is to do the will of God. I have that desire. And then guess what happens? Once you have that desire to do God's will, you're going to discover something that the words of Christ embody that desire. In other words, you have a sense of it in your heart and then you go to the word of God and you're like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. And then the will of God is revealed. I want to do it. I see that the words from Christ embody that desire. How could it not? He said, I've come to do your will. I owe nothing but, and you say, that's right. And then, then, then your heart is opened up and you say, ah, and that is the will of God. And then, so the very desire, here's the point, the very desire to do God's will actually opens up your eyes to seeing in the word the embodiment of your very desire. In other words, what's in your heart at that moment is matched by what's in God's word. And there's that new living, you know, where the Lord says that my spirit and your spirit kind of like go together now. There's a new connection. There's a new life that you're seeing. It's in you. It's in God's word. You delight in it. And then you look and you say, I see the will of God that I want to do. That's what I came in here. I couldn't do it. I was weak. I desired. Then I see the word. I understand that my desire is met by that word. And the will is right there. And now I want to do it. What is your, what is, how do you start into this? Your attitude. Just your attitude. I want to do the will of God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says it so well. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. I knew I was going to be in Romans 8 today. I didn't know I was going to be in Romans 8, 1 to 4, though. That's sometimes what happens. Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That, there it is right there. The spirit himself, God, through his word, testifies with our spirit. There's a communion between God's spirit and ours, right? And what is the message? We are children of God. How does that make you want to do the will of God when you understand that? I'm God's child. This is who I really am. What the children, you know, when children are oriented to their parents, what do they want to do? Well, they may not, this may not be true. It's the design that, you know, they want to do their will. If you want to be just like your dad, how do you become just like your dad? Do what he tells you to do. Okay. Now, in the human realm, that could be good or bad, but you get the idea. I'm a child of God. This is who I am. I delight in that. The spirit is telling me that that's the truth. I'm understanding and I'm, I'm sensing the truth of God's word in my very being that the spirit is teaching me this. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, think about this. You are an heir of God. See, you can have that direct connection with God that Jesus had. Not, not, a, not as the son of God, of course, never, but as an adopted child of God. You are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But notice, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. And that's part of it, too. You see, when you want to do the will of God, there will be resistance. You will lose out in certain areas, but you're willing, right? Because that's, that is part of the glory. Part of the glory is to take selfish people and make them selfless, to take people who ran away from any kind of suffering, the people who are willing to endure it, 
because they know that's the path to glorifying God. The word of God rings true in the hearts of men who seek him earnestly. That's how you know. You seek and you will find. That's how you know that the word of God is true. Okay, you seek him and and it rings true in your heart. We've all had that. Hopefully we've all had that experience. When there's something we've wrestled with on our own, it didn't quite make sense. And all of a sudden the word of God comes and you're like, now that rings true. That is something that actually solves that problem or answers that question. But how did you get there? By treating this as a, as a, as a, as like a scholarly book that I'm going to learn the Greek from? Or by saying, no, this is the very words of God. And I'm going to seek to, to, to seek him earnestly through it. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12. It's funny, Jeremiah 29, maybe some of you are clicking into that right now. This is a very popular passage, not, but not the one we're going to look at, the one before it, right? I know the plans I have for you, right? That is, I've been around kids in high, in high school and go to graduations, and they say at Christian schools, what's your verse? Probably about half the kids always have that verse. I know the plans I have for you. Of course, they totally misquote it because it, it has to do with Israel and the, the, the kingdom. But in any event, but let's go forward a few verses young people what does it say in verse 12 jeremiah 29 12 then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and i will listen to you notice the next verse you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart and i will be found by you declares the lord and i will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you. What's what's he talking about here? Verse 13 is the key. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There's that desire. I want to find him. I want to know who he is. I want to come to know him. Okay, then you will. When you when you seek and search, when you really, really, you know, have integrity around this, when it's really your desire, you will find him. What a promise in God's word. That's how it works. And you know what? You can really this morning boil this all down to one word, and that's love. The one thing that the Lord commanded his people, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. It's that simple. It's really that simple. Because because if you love him, you seek him out. And, And it's just an openness to his word. You know how... We're on our guard with most people. But the people we really love and really love us, right? We sort of, I'm not on guard anymore. Here here I am. Here you are. And, and that's where we can get to with God. Same thing. It's an openness. It's a frankness. It's a, it has integrity. It's real. And again, the first commandment in the Lord Moses, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. What does your Lord desire from you? Not, nothing but to require, but to fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways and love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. That was Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. This is what I mean. All those Jewish scholars, those Jewish authorities that were critiquing Jesus and hating him. And remember remember now, who is he? Came from God, came from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the point. They were, if they really 
We're loving the Lord, fearing him and desiring to walk in his ways and serve the Lord. They would have recognized Jesus, that that same thing we've been talking about as far as recognizing in the word of God. Jesus is the living word of God. If that was really what, what, what was in their hearts to serve and love the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they would have welcomed him and embraced him. And the fact that they didn't showed that they weren't living at all according to the desire that the Lord made first and foremost. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples, right? He says, if anyone loves me, right, let's see this one. This is where we'll, we'll close. I didn't get, my gosh. Sometimes you're just preaching. And you don't get to everything. Oh, well, this, this is where we'll close today. John chapter 14, verse 23. John 14, 23. Talking to his disciples, setting the tone, as it were, for what their lives are going to be like when he goes back to the Father. Look at verse 23, John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will sing songs about me. Right? Well, that's nice. Yeah, that's great, as a matter of fact. We should sing songs from our heart to the Lord. But what's the test? What's the test of love? Keep my word. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Not as a duty, but as as day follows night. If you, if, again, if you love the Lord, it will be a delight to keep his word. He will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. And he who does not love me, what? Does not keep my words. You see, you can't hide from that. And this was the problem with the Jewish authorities. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't love the Lord, their God. Very first commandment. And therefore, they weren't keeping his word. So that when the living word came, they were rejecting him as well. And notice the end. right? Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And this word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If you want to understand more about the ways of God, it's one decision away. Decide to obey his commands. If you want to understand, not know the scripture only, right? Not recite the doctrine, but to understand his ways that he knows and he understands me. That's how God put it. How do you do it? Decide, decide to obey his commands. That's how you get to understand more of God's ways. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. For, for leveling with us. I want to thank you, Father, for, for making it clear what you're, what you're actually saying, why, why the purpose of our lives now that Jesus has died for our sins and that you've condemned sin itself in, in the flesh of, of Christ on the cross. We understand that you've freed us up for a purpose, and our purpose is glorify you by being obedient to your commands, by, by fulfilling in us the righteousness of the law, the purpose, the holiness. These are the things which glorify you. So, we, Father, we would ask today that we would, 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 would take this for the truth, the pure truth of your word, and to see it in our own lives and to ask ourselves, okay, why am I not keeping your word in this area? 
and we have to go back, it's only because I'm lacking an understanding of who you are still. And I'm still, I'm still, there's some, some obstacle between me and freely loving you because perfect love casts out any fear that we might have that we, that we think would come from being obedient. So help us, Father, along this, this road we're traveling with you. We know that it's all enabled by your word and your spirit. We look forward to being ever more freed up and have that simple desire to love you and glorify you through your word and through the truth that sets us free. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so that's our portion. Now i got to go back and figure out the next week. Do I want to continue on this or move on to the next passion? That's always my dilemma. It's always my dilemma. You know, I have a problem. I like enjoy and get so much out of a scripture, you know. And sometimes I just want to stay there. You know? But, you know, but then we never get through the Gospel of John, right? Which I guess would be, you know, that's the way if God wants to, if Lord wants to come back and take us up. We're in the middle of the Gospel of John. I can't think of a better place to be in any event. Just a reminder that um, we do, of course, have Bible studies here on Thursday evening at 630 I know most of you are joining us on Skype, and that's just fine. Um, if you can make it, it's even more fine. Um, so just a reminder about that. Reminder that um, in keeping with what we've been talking about today, we talk about giving, and it should never be a chore. It should never be a, I'm going to fulfill some requirement. Can you see how that's ridiculous? When you understand the purpose for which God sent his son to die and rise again, that we would have that genuineness about us. That we would want to desire, right? And this is an area, you know, it's 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 like not really, you know, sexy. If that's the right word. It's not the right word, Val. Had too many words this morning, you know. No, no one's going to give you a big big pat on the back when you give selflessly and and without wanting to get any approval for it, you know. But it's part of being obedient, isn't it? Part of being obedient. Doesn't the Word of God say to give generously, generously from your heart as God has has prospered you? Isn't that in his word? Isn't it, isn't it, is it true then that when we obey it, that things will open up about understanding his ways? That's what Jesus is teaching. Okay, so that, and that's just one example of that. But it is something that we all share, you know, that call from God to realize how he's blessed us and to freely give. And that's the way in which, that's the way in which we give in the Christian. That's why no tithing, we're not going to do a fun drive. We're not going to do any of those things. We're not going to have a bulletin where we have the person who gave the most at the top. And you know, all these gimmicks that people, you know, we're not going to do any of that. Okay? We never do that. It's just simply a matter of your heart freely responding to what you've, how you've grown in the love of God and freely want to imitate him because he gives freely. Thank God he does. All right, gospel of Jesus Christ, remember, it's also simple, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. See how it's all a matter of love at the end? If it wasn't for the love of God, he wouldn't have sent his son. He said it to fulfill his righteousness and his justice, but he was motivated by love for us. Okay? And the gospel is that Jesus did come. He's the son of God. We were all dead and lost in our sins. Jesus comes, goes to the cross, dies for all the sin of the world, Buried, raised up by the Father on the third day. So that's simply, again, attitude, believing, believing in him. That's it. And a person will never perish but has eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we want to once again praise you. 
we, we call you Father, and so often, Father, we forget to just enjoy the simplicity of that. And we know that we can because the Holy Spirit inside us is going to remind us again and again and, and, and overflow in our hearts to really, really understand more and more what does it mean that we're your children and you're our Father and we're members of the same family and the same body. So we, we just ask, Father, that, that we would continue to seek out your word, not so we can be smart, but so that we can become more obedient and able to do your will. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed and have a great week.